Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Great, Doxedo Hatfield, so you can uh, take out your Bible with me if that's all right, if you have a Bible with you. And you can open it up to the book of Acts in the New Testament. So we are busy with a sermon series in this book of Acts that we started just a couple of weeks ago. We're calling Real Christianity as Luke, the doctor, one of the early followers of Jesus. He wrote this two-volume work, the first being his record of the life of Jesus, meticulously recorded through eyewitness testimony. And then he writes the follow-up. It's The Godfather Part 2 of Luke, he writes this book called Acts, which tells the story of the early church. And if, unless you live under a rock here in Hatfield, you would know that last week we basically gave through the news that we had lost our venue. And uh, it was quite traumatic in the moment for us as a young church, like, what should we do? And I want to ask you, just maybe with that in mind, what do you think is our greatest need as a church? What do you think we need more than anything at this moment? Any thoughts? Jesus. My daughter, that was my daughter, guys, just saying. That's the default answer for anything in the church. You can never, no one can ever say no if that was the answer, by the way. But if in your heart you feel you step onto this ground this morning and you feel, man, what we need now as a church is a new building, right? That we can fill to the brim with people. We need a new space, a new venue. And if that's in your heart, I want to respectfully disagree with you. I want to say I don't think the thing we need at the moment the most is a building that we can fill to the brim. I think what we need is a people filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. We need a people that are so full of the presence and the power and the beauty and the truth of God. That's what we need. So let me illustrate. Probably one of the greatest engineering marvels of the last 10 years or so, especially in the nautical world, is the ship called the Symphony of the Seas. It is the biggest cruise liner ever built by mankind. This thing is insane. So it houses nine people. It cost $1.3 billion to construct. It's five times the size of the Titanic and at 236 meters long, if you turn it on its side, it'll be the third tallest building in all of Europe. This thing is huge. But when I read some of what they call the extra entertainment kind of options on this boat, something really struck my heart. So let me read to you some of these things. So they say on this boat, there are 40 restaurants and bars, 23 pools, jacuzzis and water slides, two West End-sized theaters, an ice rink, a surf simulator, two climbing walls, a zip line, a fairground carousel, a mini golf course, a 10-story fun slide, laser tag, a spa, a gym, a casino, and dozens more shopping and entertainment opportunities. Isn't that just insane? Like, who builds this? And someone says, yes, let's do that. But when I read that... You know what actually struck me in my spirit was, this is the way that I used to think about the Holy Spirit as a young Christian. we all on the same journey. we all trusting Jesus, if you're a Christian this morning, to grow in maturity and following him. But this is how I used to see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is he's one of the optional entertainment extras of the faith. Jesus and the Father, yes, you know, but the Holy Spirit's there just to spice things up a bit, you know, just to entertain us a bit, to make things interesting when the lights are really dim on a Sunday. That's the Holy Spirit. That's how I used to think. But the thing that actually puts this city on the sea, on the cover of engineering magazines that makes it literally a miracle of engineering, is not these extras. It's what's under the ship. It's the engines. You see, these engineers were able to do literally the impossible. They were able to put four 25,000 horsepower engines into this literally piece of steel that floats in the sea, and it drives the city basically forward. 
And when I think of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly who he is. He's not an optional entertainment extra. He is literally the one that drives the church and the kingdom forward in the city. Yes, amen, Mo. Again, he's paid to say that, but he's going he's gonna to get you guys into it. Friend, if you're a Christian this morning, I want to say that you cannot be a lawyer or a doctor or a plumber or an electrician without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be the fullness of what God has called you to be. You cannot be a brother or a colleague or a friend or a mother without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit filling you to the brim. No, real Christianity, this is not for the green berets, the special people in the faith, no. The book of Romans 8 verse 5 says that real Christianity, normal, supernaturally natural Christianity, is when the people of God live, it says, according to the Spirit in everyday life. Whether I'm going to work or parenting, whether I'm battling in my finances, or I'm saying, God, I have to make this pitch tomorrow in my office, it's all according to the Spirit. That's why Jesus would make this crazy statement in John 16 verse 7. God literally incarnate on the planet says this. He says to his disciples, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit, what, that I go away. Why? Because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, the Spirit of truth. That's what Jesus, as we've been going through the book of Acts, he promises his church, wait before you go out into all of the world. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. What do we need most at the moment, Dr. Hatfield? What do you need and I need? What does this church need? More than a building that's filled up. We need a people that's filled up. Because when every time in history and every time in the book of Acts, the people ask for the Spirit to once again invigorate them, what happens? Literally, the world changes. So read with me. Acts chapter 2. Let's see what this looks like in practice in your Bible, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya, and Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, no, they are drunk on new wine. Isn't that just a classic ending to that passage? Now, you'll see in your Bible that most of your Bibles have the heading of this little text as something like the day of Pentecost or just Pentecost. And that's a word. If you've been in Christian circles anywhere in your life, you would have heard this word Pentecost. Um, You know, some people would say, I'm in a Pentecostal church, or the day of Pentecost is important, or we need to celebrate Pentecost in some way. But here's a question, what does it actually mean? What is is Pentecost all about? Because I don't know if you notice this, look in verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. It doesn't say when the day that it would eventually become known as Pentecost, it says when the day of Pentecost arrived. 
So in other words, by the time this incredible day broke open in the history of the church, there was already a day of Pentecost in the calendar of the ancient Jewish people. So what is that? If we don't understand this, what it meant to them, we're not going to understand the significance for us here today as Doxedo Hatfield in 2021. So what did it mean for them? Now, basically, you'll see that this day of Pentecost, the ancient Israelites, they were obviously an agricultural society. So most of their festivals had the, the kind of leanings of what the agricultural world had to do with it. And so they had this day called the, the Feast of First Fruits, where when the harvest started coming in, they would take some of the first of all of that harvest and they would come together and eat it in celebration. And that would, happen, that would happen exactly 50 days, so Pentecost, Penta 5, that would happen 50 days after um, Passover. And Passover obviously was this huge moment for the ancient Israelites where they celebrated this meal that they took together before God rescued them from Egypt and he took them toward the promised land. So that was 50 days after, it was this feast of first fruits. But that, that Pentecost, specific Pentecost moment after they left Egypt, also about 50 days after that, God pulled the people of Israel together at Mount Sinai. And he arrived and he came down on the mountain and Moses went up and he engaged with God and they received the Ten Commandments and the law for the people of Israel in covenant with God. So what happened over the years when you get to Jesus and the early church is these two events started almost melding into one. Where the people would eventually celebrate on the day of Pentecost, they would celebrate this moment where God came down on the mountain and he met his people and he gave the law. One man went up, one man spent time with God. And that was the picture. And, and in fact, I want to quickly read to you from Exodus 20, this moment that we're speaking of, this mountain experience. So interesting. Listen to this. It says, all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the mountain surrounded by smoke, and they trembled. They stood at a distance. They said, you speak to us and we will listen, Moses, but don't let God speak to us. You go. <laughs> we will die, literally. So what was happening? They were like, listen, we want to hear God speak, but we cannot take the fullness of his presence. We cannot even stand the fullness of his nearness to us. So you go, Moses, you go and represent us. And so the first Pentecost, the first mountain moment is one man going up, one man hearing from God, one man experiencing God, and one man bringing down the law to the people. And that was the picture of Pentecost in people's mind for centuries, hundreds of years, until this day that we're going to speak about now. Until this day, the second Pentecost, the second mountain moment when God came down. And I want to show you three things that happened in this moment. When God's people are filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit when he comes down, three things happen, and I'm trusting it's going to happen in our hearts today. The first is this, where the church is filled, where Dr. Hatfield and every church in this city is filled with the Holy Spirit, what? There's a new confidence. There's a confidence in the people. So read with me, highlight this in your Bible. Verse one, it says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, verse three says what? They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Say filled. They were filled. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the reason we read that and we don't pass out, we don't faint because of this idea, is because we don't have nearly in the modern world the, the high view of God that the ancient Israelites had. You see, when the ancient Israelites, every time God would meet them in the Old Testament, there was something with fire basically involved. So God leads the Israelites through the desert. It's a pillar of fire. He meets Moses for the first time. It's a burning bush. Um, he comes down on the mountain, and it's literally just wind and fire on the mountain. 
Why? Because for an ancient people who lived thousands of years ago, fire represented something to them. And that spoke to their hearts about who God is. It told them that, that fire is powerful. God is powerful. It spoke to them about the fact that, that fire has this mesmerizing beauty to it. God is mesmerizingly beautiful, his glory. But it also spoke to them about the fact that the presence of God, it purifies whatever it touches. It spoke to them about God. And so the first moment, the first Pentecost, the, the fire and the wind of God comes down on the mountain, but one man goes up and experiences that, and he brings back the law. That was the first Pentecost. But the second Pentecost was so different because once again, the fire and the wind of God comes down. But here's the astounding thing. This is a crazy thing. My, my question to you is, where is the second mountain? Where is the second mountain that God comes down upon? And the answer the text gives us is what? He didn't come down upon a mountain. He came down upon the people. He comes to not fill a mountain. He comes to fill you and I, the church, the people literally become a mountain. The people become individually, each and every single one of them, and collectively they become the presence-holding place of God. And it doesn't just say some of them. Listen to this. There's this word. It says here specifically, the fire came down, and it says it's separated. So it didn't come down on one place. It actually went to every single person, every single Jesus follower. We spoke last week about them being in the room together, 120. The greatest, the most impactful movement in human history started with those 120 people. And here it says the presence of God comes and separates, and it comes to fill every single one of them. Every single one of them became the pillar of fire, became the burning bush. They became the place where God would fully rest. So in the Old Testament, you had these moments where the fire of God would come down, the presence would come down, and you couldn't even stand it. God would come into the temple, and the temple would be so full of his glory that the priest couldn't even go in. It was too much. And that's why it's so crazy to think that Peter would speak about this, and he would say in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, that now as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, we partake, he says, we share in the divine nature of God. God comes to fill literally every single one of us. Guys, there's not a world religion that has the guts to say this. Every single world religion will say, this is the way, this is the path, this is the method, this is the, the place of persistent gathering that will bring you closer to God, that will bring you maybe into a safe space with God, into favor with God. But the Bible says, Christianity says, Jesus says, I'm not coming to be close to you, I'm coming to inhabit you. You become my mountain, you partake literally, you share in the divine nature of God, if Moses were here today, if he sat at the back there, he would stand up at this moment and he would run to the front and he would shout at us and say, do you know what you are offered? Do you know what you are offered? That thing that I couldn't fully experience on the mountain, that thing that the people couldn't even handle, that thing that the priests couldn't even go in and fully experience, you are offered that fully. God calls you your life. He calls you his people, his church. You are my mountain. I come to fill you. Do you understand that this morning? Do you understand who you are in God's eyes? Do you understand the capacity that God has put in you? 
Because if we think we're going to have confidence as a church, if we have a building, man, let's stand in front of our building and take a photo. This is the, this is the meeting place of Doxedo Hatfield. Aren't we fancy? Aren't we nice? Guys, that does not say anything about us. A full building can say so much about a church. It can. That God is doing incredible things. It can also say absolutely nothing. It can say that the band is really good at what they do. It can say that the speaker is really charismatic or the children's ministry is really good at caring for the very tired kids of those parents. It can say nothing. What gives us confidence is not the fact that we have a building full to the brim, but that God says, I want to fill you to the brim with my beauty and my presence and my power and my truth and my grace. So that when you go to church, this is not the moment of glory for the church. Tomorrow morning when you set foot in your family, in your house, in your office, in your commune, between your friends, there is a confidence that you have to be reminded of to say that God in his fullness is in me. He has chosen to make me the fullness of his presence. And not even Moses had that. You have that. Guys, can I tell you this? The last two weeks, man, I've had a moment emotionally. I was, I was like roller coastering up and down. Parenting wise, I was nowhere. I was nowhere. I was shockingly bad as a parent this, the whole last two weeks. And there was a moment in this week, one of the evenings in this week, where I sat at our table and I felt so, I felt so frustrated. I felt so incompetent as a parent. And I literally, because I've been reading the scripture for the last two weeks, this thought literally came to mind. It is I that is in you. Stand up and be the parent that I've called you to be because my presence is in you. So when you go into that space tomorrow in your office and you feel, God, I'm struggling because everyone around me has a different worldview than me. And it feels like almost like a, like a, a, you know, a ship under the sea. I'm getting crushed by the pressure. You have to hear once again, no, you are not. Because the fullness of my presence is in you. We should literally, not because of arrogance, but as Christians coming to change the city with the love and the grace of Jesus, we should walk with our chests out in the city saying the fullness of God walks where I walk. If we say, you know, invite someone to our gathering on a Sunday, do that. That's awesome because the glory of God will be here. Guys, the glory of God leaves with you today. You have the glory of God in you. When you are parenting, when you are struggling, when you say and, sit and say, God, how should I actually put my budget together? How should I actually, God, lead my, my kids? God, how should I actually walk in the city in a way that represents you? Do you know what you have, Moses says? You are the fullness of God. You are the mountain of God when you leave. There's a confidence in the church that changed the world. Schools and hospitals and universities. Do you know that the, two first, uh, the first 200 universities in America of all the Ivy League ones, by the way, got started by Christians. Why? The confidence that God wants us to know his creation. He wants us to study his world. He wants us to grow in knowledge because the fullness of the presence of the creator of the universe is in me. But secondly, where the church is filled with the Holy Spirit to the broom, there's not just a new confidence, there's a new calling. There's a calling upon the church there's a stunning contrast between the first and the second Pentecost. Because in the first one, one guy goes up. One guy goes, one guy meets God, one guy hears, and one guy brings back the message. And what is the message? It's the law. And what is the law for the Israelites? Do this, don't do that, you're in covenant with me, don't steal, um, you know, don't covet, don't do these things. So what is it saying? It's the works of the people, right? That's the law. 
It's the works of the people in the context of covenant relationship. The works of the people. But how different is the second Pentecost? Read with me in verse 4. It says, verse 4, they were all filled. All of them. So in other words, when the Holy Spirit began to speak through them, who spoke? Everyone spoke. They were all filled and they all basically began to speak in different tongues. So there were like 20 to 30 people groups. It says every nation under heaven got together in Jerusalem. And they were literally given this ability by God to speak to these people in their own language. Afrikaans and Twana and English and Mandarin, they were speaking to these people in their own language. And not just the apostles, we spoke about them, the core leadership of the early church, everyone spoke. And just quick sidebar here, this miracle that God did here to speak through his people to the people, this is not the same as the gift of tongues, where it's a, it's, a, it's a heavenly language to speak to God, to commune with God in his spirit. That is different. And we're going to have a lot of time to look at that as the book of Acts goes on, because it happens very often. But this was different. This was a miracle that God came to do through his people. And all of them spoke. And the question is, what did they say? What did they speak when they opened up their mouths to the nations gathered together? Read with me in verse 11. It says, the people heard them what? Declaring the magnificent acts of God. The magnificent acts of God. You see, the first Pentecost, Moses goes alone and Moses speaks alone. And what does he speak? He speaks the law. Do this, don't do that. The second Pentecost, God comes down on his mountain once again through his spirit. It's fire and smoke once again, but this time he fills all of his people and all of his people speak. And what do they speak of? Do they speak of the magnificent works of the people for God? No, they speak about the magnificent work of God for his people. They don't speak about the fact that you have to do great things for Jesus. They speak about the fact that Jesus has done a great thing for you. That's good news, friends. That's so different. That historically, this man who claimed to be the fullness of the presence of God came to take the very sin and brokenness and death and confusion and hopelessness and, and, and devil irritation in the heart of mankind upon himself. And he doesn't call people to do and do and do, but to come and say, it is done. Now rearrange your life and your heart according to my truth. Follow me, he says. Put your faith in me, he says. This is what the church spoke. This is the good news that just oozed out of them. That the essence of Christianity is not what so many people think. It's about trying to be a good person. No, the essence of Christianity, when God spoke through his people, is that the only truly good person came to do a finished work for you and for me. For every single person in the city. For the father that you love so dearly and that you wonder, God, why will he ever know you? God, I'm praying for him. He died for your father too. He came to give life for him. That's why Jesus can say this incredible thing. This is mind-blowing. Matthew 11, verse 11. He speaks about John, his close friend, who was like a prophet who walked before Jesus. And he says this. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. He's saying, trust me, I'm a big deal. This guy is a big deal. And yet he says this, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is he saying? He says, the things that every Old Testament prophet all the way up to John only had a glimpse of, the least and the youngest and the freshest Christian has the fullness of. 
you have the fullness of the good news of Jesus in you. And what is that message? That's why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, this is the essence of that message. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have so many embassies in and around this area. Embassy of this and this and this. He says, you are the embassy of the kingdom of God in Pretoria. Wherever you walk, the embassy is walking. Where you speak, the embassy is speaking. Where you help and serve the poor. When we went to the hospital last week, the embassy of God was there. That lady showed us the embassy of, I think, Egypt. It was right across the, the road. The embassy of God was moving, was praying. He says, we are the ambassadors of Christ. And God is making his appeal to the city of Pretoria. How? Through us, he says. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin, who's that? Jesus. To be our sin. To be my brokenness, my past, my hurt. The things that were done to me, the things that I've done, the things that that bring me great shame, the things that bring me guilt and pain in my life. Jesus became that so that what? You would have a second chance. You would try and be a good person. You could go to church more often. You could help old ladies across the street. No, it says he did that. What? So that you would become the righteousness, the right standing of God. Not you will eventually be if you try hard enough so that you would be the righteousness of God. That is the message that we have. And that's why someone who's filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit, you cannot keep quiet about this. How can I? How can I be quiet about this? I have to speak. I have to share. I have to testify. I have to drip feed what Jesus is doing in my life decade after decade into every single engagement I have. You know, I see this with weddings. I do weddings often. And just the other day, a couple told me straight, please don't mention any religious stuff or God at the ceremony. And I told them, unfortunately, I cannot marry you. And then every now and then I would get a couple who tell me, basically, listen, this is obviously, it's a wedding day, but can we ask you this? Make sure that every single guest and family member and friend hears the good news of Jesus. What is that speaking of? It means they are full of the spirit of God. If I have one message I want to share, the world is training us with social media to say, make your voice so incredibly important. Every single thought I have about my sandwich this morning and about this series and this thing, let's just all blurt out everything we have to say. And the city is dying because it does not have a message of hope. It only has sex. It only has money. It only has success. It only has high-rise buildings. It only has nice cars. It only has people on the street dying, and the church sits with the message of the freedom that Jesus brings. Guys, if we take a message to our city that says, you better do, my friend. You, that is so empty. We have people literally dying of hunger in our city, and we have people dying emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, people that, that are at the pinnacle of their career, and yet they go home so deadly empty inside. If we go to a city like that and we say, oh, you better do, that's not good news. But when we go and say, you know what, when the mountain came down on the people, it was the message of the reconciliation of mankind through the finished work of Jesus. Receive it. Let him transform you. Let him free you. Let him redeem you. Let him send you into a new life, life to the full. Guys, do, you, do, do I think God wants to give us a new building, a bigger building, and fill it up? Oh, yes, baby. 
the honey ball. Someone said this week, they believe God is going to give us a bigger space and fill it up. And I say inside, amen. And he's going to fill the next one up and the next one. And then we're going to start spreading out and planting out new campuses. He is going to fill up the building, but how is he going to do it? It's going to be when the people are full of the message, when we are full of the presence. Who are you inviting to this church to say, I want you to hear the life-giving message of Jesus because it's transforming. Guys, just practically, can I ask you, I, I'm, I'm slipping with this because I'm, I hang around with too many Christians. Since we've moved, I need to find a space where non-Christians operate. I'm too much in the church office around Christianese language and churchy Hannity people, and that's awesome, and that's great. But I want a space where I can just share my story with people. And whether you are a plumber or a pediatrician, are you sharing your story about what Jesus has done in your life with people? There's a calling in the people when we are filled. And lastly, when the church is full, and we're going to take a bit of time and just minister. When the church is filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit, not only is there a confidence and a calling, but there is a new community. And for Hatfield, guys, this one is big. There's a new community. So there's a last little parallel that the Dr. Luke is trying to draw for us to the Old Testament. In Genesis 10, you have this table of nations. It mentions all these nations, exactly like what Luke is doing here in verses 9 to 11. And what happens in that Genesis 10 story? It's the Tower of Babel. And basically the Tower of Babel is when all the people come together and say, let's build this great city, let's build this tower so that our name would be known. Let's make a name for ourselves. So that says there in Genesis 10, they had one language, but their goal was self-edification, self-posturing, self-focus. So what happens when God comes for the second time and he rains down his spirit and all these languages speak to all these people? What is it? It's the reverse of this curse of the Tower of Babel. It's the reverse. Now God, in many languages, brings together a new people that I've no longer got the greatest goal in their hearts to say my name, my people, my church, my leader, my brand. They say, now we're all about them out there. We're all about the people of the city because of Jesus. Why? Why can that happen? Read here, it says in verse 7, they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, Galilee was where Jesus came from and a whole bunch of the, the early followers. But this is a put down. This is not just a statement. They are giving them a jab because everyone, if you're going to read about it, the Galileans were famous for not wanting to have anything to do with the people around them. They were for themselves. It's us. It's Galilee. Us four and no more. And what happens when the Spirit comes down upon the people? There was such a deep transformation in the people that they said, we can never live for ourselves again. We live for the nations. It says every nation under heaven was gathered there. You have to see this moment with all these people at this festival. It's not 15 or 20 people that were there, guys. All the commentators say it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that gathered. So this is more Burning Man. This is more Makufe Music Festival. This is Opikopi. It's like thousands of people coming together. And God says, I want to make a statement about who my people will be. There has never been a more multi-ethnic movement in the history of the human race than the Christian church. We are here for the people of the city. And how can that transformation happen? Because it's no longer my works, it's his work. It's no longer my track record, it's his track record. It's no longer my deeds, it's his deed that is done. And that brings on the one hand such a security in my heart. I never have to prove myself again. I never have to prove myself to any person, not even my parents. I never have to posture 
and make my name great because God knows my name. But on the other hand, it means I can never, ever, ever, ever again see myself as superior to someone else. Oh, it's our race. It's our people. It's our color. It's us. It's us as a church. No, it's not. It's for them. That's why in this church, we can have the Sebaquanes and the Groblers. Um, we can have the Dimasai. Um, we can have the Mares. We can have all these people that would have nothing ever, ever, ever to do with one another, if not for this one thing, Jesus. Guys, this, this, this group of people here today, we would never be together. Amen? I mean, look at me. We would never be together if not for this one incredible thing, Jesus. Where he is, the nations are drawn in to form a new community. And can I say it a million times more, friends? That is the calling of this church. We are here to build a multi-ethnic community that represents the kingdom of God in this very divided city. We are not an Afrikaans church. We are not an English church. We're not a Tswana church. We are the kingdom of God. And where he is, where the people speak, a new community forms. Can I challenge you? Who is around your table in the week? Don't wait for us to organize it. You do it. Invite people in. Go and get coffee. Cross the age barrier. Cross the ethnic barrier. Start being the people of God that offends a divided city with its beauty and its love and its forgiveness and its long bearings with one another. Where the the Holy Spirit fills the people, man, there is a confidence and a calling and there's a community that rises up. So I'm going to ask the the, the worship team to join me just for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Because we want to create some space today for that very thing to happen. To say, Holy Spirit, will you come and just fill us again? The Bible says that when you become a Christian, you can stand, it's fine. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, and Peter says, and most of the New Testament says, we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Let him energize you again. Let him fill you again. And what we've decided to do is to just make it very practical. There's nothing we can organize to make this happen, guys. I don't know if you know this. We can't plan for the Holy Spirit to do something. But all that we can ask is say, Holy Spirit, we want to be just open to what you want to do. And a pattern that I see repeated over and over in the New Testament is the use of oil. Now, just before you make a backflip, there is nothing, nothing special about oil in the Bible. (laughs) There's no magical properties to it. There's not fairy dust in in it somewhere. Its molecules don't change and do something funny. But as a tangible expression, sometimes my mind needs my body to experience something. Sometimes my spirit just says, yes, God, what 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 I'm sensing now It's taking me far away from social media and the chatter and the budget and the things. And I'm here present with you right now. And what oil represents is the setting apart. It's to set people apart for what God has for them. He sets us apart for that confidence, for that calling, for that community. Exodus 40 verse 15 says, Anoint them as you anointed their fathers with oil so that they may serve me as priests. Anoint the hands of these people so that they would serve me as the priesthood of all believers out there. And I want to give some space. We're just going to give a bit of time to that, just to worship. And there is a small bit of oil in the front and at the back there. And I'm going to ask you to somewhere, as we just sing and take time, to come and take some of this oil and to anoint your hands. Maybe anoint your shoes. It's the kind of shoes that you can do that with. 
Take off your shoes then if you need. Anoint your feet. Maybe anoint your lips today. Because I want us to leave today to say that every doctor here has been anointed for the work of God. Every student has been anointed for the work of God. Every parent has been anointed for the work of God. And Holy Spirit, we just pray, will you come today and just fill us again. Just fill us, God, to the brim because you are good. And so I just pray, God, on our behalf, any person here today who says, I'm so empty. I'm empty, though I have so much of what I think I need. I'm empty, God, even from religion. I pray today that that person would go down on their knees and say, Jesus, I need nothing but you. I want to give over my whole life to you as Lord and Savior. Will you come and fill me with your presence? Fill me with the deep satisfaction and identity that comes only from God. And I pray for every Christian. I pray for my heart today, God. Will you fill us as a church again? Come, Holy Spirit.